Well, we're glad to be back together again here this morning, uh, worshiping together the Lord, uh, hopefully in spirit and in truth. Uh, we have been studying the book of Second Peter, and we're continuing our journey through the book, and uh, we're picking up here in chapter two here this morning. And by way of introduction, the uh, Puritan pastor, John uh, uh, Flavel, uh, who was born, I believe, in the early 1600s, said this once. He said that by entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertain angels unawares. But by entertaining of strange doctrines, many have entertained devils unawares. There's a lot of people today being entertained by devils. And the sad thing about it is that many of them think that they're listening to a man of God. There's a, a great need in the church today for discernment. Seems to be sorely lacking, and Christians need to be discerning of both people and of doctrine. And that's why Peter wrote his second epistle. And from it, what we see is that we need to recognize the true nature in conduct of false teachers so that we won't fall prey to doctrines of demons, that we won't entertain devils unaware. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together here this morning and for your word, for your servant Peter, and for the things that he has to teach us here this morning. Thank you for his courage for his boldness, for his unwavering commitment to you, to your word, to your people. Father, I, I pray that that would be true of us. So Holy Spirit, be our guide here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are picking up here, as I mentioned, uh, in chapter two, verse 10 here this morning. And uh, Peter returns to the description of false teachers that he began in verses 1 through 3. And he builds on what he has previously said, and he pulls no punches. He really lets it go. And it's a grotesque picture of the nature and the conduct of these men. Now, I'm only going to be going through verse 17 this morning, but we're going to see enough to note their depravity now, Peter, in, in this particular passage of Scripture, is much more descriptive, uh, much more explicit in his description of these men than he was in the earlier verses of this particular chapter. And it, it's quite stunning. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just a little bit different. I'd, I'd like for you to listen as I read this passage of scripture, because I, I feel like um, sometimes in taking uh, scripture apart verse by verse, we can kind of lose the flow and lose the impact of all of these things that are being added one on another. So I'm gonna read the scripture and then we're gonna come back to these things here this morning. So starting in verse 10 of chapter two, speaking of these false teachers, he says that they indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children." Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved, from, loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And I could keep going, but as I mentioned, I'm really only going to go through verse 17. But if you continue to read, you continue to see these descriptors of their conduct and their character. So this morning, I thought I would warn you on the front end, this is going to be a 12-point sermon. Um, but I promise we'll get you out of here before one o'clock. Um, actually, it's really only a one-point sermon, but, but, but as you heard in this description, there's a lot to unpack here. So we're just gonna take it a little bit at a time. Look at these character traits. Look at the, the, the conduct of these men. And the first thing you see there in verse 10 is that these false teachers, well, they indulge the flesh, they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Now, Peter has already demonstrated that false teaching often goes hand in hand with sexual immorality. If you remember back in, I think it was verse two, it says that many will follow their sensuality. It's not unusual that when you read about a false teacher that you oftentimes, almost as a matter of fact, you find out that they're involved in some sort of sexual immorality. For them, grace was a license to sin. Denying Christ's return and future judgment just led them to passionately pursue their wanton desires. There was nothing holding them back. So they indulged in the flesh. Also, they despise authority. Whose authority? Any authority. Any authority that is but their own. Now we need to be careful here because even though Peter is describing false teachers, there's a lot we need to take away from this. Because these false teachers didn't become false teachers overnight. As we learned in the previous weeks, that they arose from within. So like many of you, they heard the word preached. 
Many of them preached it. They knew the truth, but they went astray. And so we need to be very careful that we don't um, find certain characteristics of these false teachers showing up in our own lives. And this one in particular of despising authority, I, it's, it's sad to say, I, I see a lot of Christians doing that. You know, whether it's despising the authority of our parents or our bosses or our political leaders or even our church leaders, there, there's a lot of that that's going on. And, and perhaps no other sin reminds us more of the fall than this particular sin. Because it was this sin, it was disobedience to God's authority that led to the fall. And as a result of that, we, we've all been born with a sinful nature. We have all been rebels from birth. You know, we want the right to control our lives. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do, how to live our lives. To some degree, it's, it's kind of what this upcoming election's about. We have some people that, that, that don't want to be told that something is wrong, that we shouldn't do something. And so they fight against it. We want, we want to have the authority we reject any authority but our own because any other authority gets in the way of us getting our way. So we need to be careful of that. Notice also it says that they are self-righteous and arrogant and proud. Even though it doesn't use those words, that's what you come away with here, that they are self-righteous, they are arrogant, they are proud, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now scholars aren't clear on who these glorious ones were. Some believe that they may be church leaders. Um, many believe that, that they are angels. I particularly happen to think that they're fallen angels. And the reason why is, is that he seems to be contrasting these glorious ones that are blasphemed by these false teachers with good angels in verse 11. Hopefully you'll see that as we go through this. And it seems as if then that these false teachers were so full of themselves that they felt that they had the right and the authority to denigrate fallen angels. After all, they're fallen angels. So they disparaged them. They condemned them. And Peter's saying here that it's wrong for them. And for that matter, for anyone else to do this very thing just because they're fallen. Because they are still beings created by God. They are powerful beings created by God. Now, Peter goes on to say that although these good angels are greater in might and power than these false teachers, even they don't assume the right and the authority to pronounce judgment against their fallen counterparts. Now, Jude says something similar to that in Jude verse 9, 8 and 9. This is what he says. He says, yet in like manner... 
These people also, speaking of the false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, a good angel, contended with the devil, a fallen angel, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. You know, we've got a lot of people today that love to do spiritual warfare. And I've been in some of those circles. And to hear them talk about fallen angels, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's incredible. You've probably heard things from, you know, I rebuke you, Satan, to, you know, I cast you out, you demon of lust, or, you know, or, or I come against, you know, and then you just fill in the blank. I was, just, I was just thinking about it. I have heard, I didn't know there were so many demons in the world. I mean, demons of lust, demons of jealousy, demons of cancer, demons of flatulence and halitosis. I mean, just, I mean there's demons for everything. But here what we see is rather than assuming the right and the authority to rebuke the devil, Michael exercises restraint and he leaves the judgment to God. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this text really ought to make us think twice about trash-talking demons. If good angels who are greater in might and power are careful how they address fallen angels, so should we. Michael was careful not to overstep his authority, so we should not rush in where angels fear to tread. Fourthly, we see in verse 12 that they are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. You know, these false teachers are like irrational animals. Some of your translations may say like brute beasts. They no longer have the capacity for rational thought. Their brains and their spirits have have atrophied. They've shriveled up, so to speak. They now operate on base impulses and base instincts. They are driven by their sinful impulses and desires. Now, he says several things concerning them um, as irrational animals or brute beasts. And, And one of the things he says in verse 12 there is that they are born to be caught and destroyed. It's like they have no other purpose. They're like animals that are destined to be captured or trapped in a snare by hunters and killed. They have no idea that they're headed for destruction. Second, they blaspheme or revile things that they don't understand, that that they're ignorant of. And the reason why is they've lost the capacity for rational thought. They have no spiritual discernment. They have no wisdom Yet they profess to be wise. And in so doing, they become fools. They're empty talkers. And the thing about empty talkers is that they keep talking. They really have nothing to say. So they keep filling the air. 
Verse 12 also tells us that they will be destroyed in their destruction. Now the word also there most likely refers back to the animals to which these false teachers are being compared. In fact, the New Living, excuse me, the, the NIV 84 says, like beasts, they too will perish. Destroyed in their destruction literally means in their corruption, they too shall be corrupted. In other words, what goes around comes around. But if you look at verse 13, you see that they will also suffer wrong for their wrongdoing. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said once that you cannot do wrong without suffering wrong. Sometimes we don't think that's the case because it may not happen immediately. But I think it's a principle that holds true. The apostle Peter is essentially saying the same thing here. The arrogance and the depravity of these false teachers is going to come back to bite them. And it's going to come back and it's going to bite them hard. Now the clause, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing is an interesting thing. It's, it's a poetic way, really, of simply saying they're going to reap what they sow. The wicked are going to face certain judgment in the future, no doubt. But what Peter is saying here is is that often we get a taste of hell before we ever get there. We get a taste of hell while living here on earth. You see, sin has consequences in life. I mean, most people with half a brain realize that. You know, you sin, you do something stupid, you do something wrong, you disobey, you know, there, there are consequences. Now, we may not think that there are consequences, but ultimately, sin is deceptive. It robs us blind. It, it may ruin our health or our character. It may destroy our bodies or our minds, but no doubt it robs us of true life. It robs us of joy. It robs us of peace. Jesus himself said that that the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and destroy. And and we need to understand, you know, the, the, the thief doesn't show up at your door and say, hey, I'm here to rob you blind. He'll do it stealthily. He'll do it when you're not looking, when you're not paying attention. That's why we need to be on guard. That's why Peter has written this book, so that we would stand firm in the faith. You know, I've got a cousin who I haven't really seen in in years, largely I think now because he's in hiding. Um, But growing up, I looked up to him. He was my hero. I wanted to be just like him. I thought he was so cool. And uh, in following him, you know, I started dabbling things that I shouldn't have dabbled with. And only by God's grace did I not end up going down a road that would lead to my destruction. God called me out of that at 21 years of age. He, He saved me. But my cousin continued on the path to this day. And now he's in his 60s, and, and he's not any better off than he was when he was a teenager. 
In fact, I would argue he's in a much worse shape now. That's what sin does to you. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. In the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, we read that be sure your sin will find you out. I mean, God, God knows it. God sees it. And we may think we're getting away, but he says, be sure your sin will find you out. Sooner or later, you're going to be found out. It's going to become uncovered. Verse 13 gives us another descriptor. It says that they are brazen in their sin. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are bold and defiant in their sin. You know, it's bad enough to party hardy under the cover of darkness. But to flaunt your sin and your depravity in broad daylight reveals that they have lost any sense of shame. There's no guilt. I I don't know. Does that remind you of anything today? I had all sorts of pictures come into my mind. You know, one of the first things I thought about was spring break in Fort Lauderdale, you know, or Daytona Beach. or my, and you, you see it on the news, the pictures, what's, what's, what goes on. How about pride parades? What about drag queens in elementary schools doing story time? It's, it's being flaunted. There's, they, they, they have no conscience. There's no shame. There's no guilt, no sense of right or wrong. There's no remorse. People who live without fear of punishment. And more than that, they celebrate their sin. And they, and, 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 and they rejoice when other people join in with them. That's what Paul gets to in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Ah, that away. Great, great job. Good, good. Keep it up. Yeah, keep going. They encourage that behavior. They celebrate it. Verse 13 to me is one of the most, I'm going to say powerful. It's, 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 it's shocking to me. Verse 13, it says, that it, really when you read it, that, that these people are unholy hypocrites. And I'll share why they're hypocrites in a second. But notice it says that they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, notice that Peter doesn't say that these are people with blots and blemishes. He says they are blots and blemishes. There's a difference. All of us are sinners. All of us fall short of God's glory. But hopefully we are quick to repent of our sin. And when we do, the Bible tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
But these aren't people with, with a spot here and a spot here and a spot there that need to be forgiven. They're just one huge spot. They're a, they're a blemish. They, they posture themselves as one of us all the while seeking to deceive and lead people away from the truth. Now, in the early church, believers gathered together for fellowship meals as well as to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was a, a common early church practice. So, so the phrase, while they feast with you, is probably a reference to that. So these are people then who are within the church participating in the life of the church, going through the very same things that we go through, celebrating the Lord's Supper together, eating a meal together, and they profane the house of God, the people of God, and the things of God. To them, nothing is sacred. They stain and they defile all things holy. And I've been in the church long enough to see it, to know it exists today. And I think, again, it's so easy for us to be thinking about these false teachers that are somehow so different from us, so removed from us, but yet in reality, again, they got there because of incremental compromises, most likely in their walk with Christ. It was moving into the shadows, little by little by little. And if we're not careful, we can end up in the same place. Notice also in verse 14, it says that they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, in verse 14. The phrase, eyes full of adultery, could either mean that they were obsessed uh, with adulterous women, or as I'm inclined to believe, have the inability to look at women without seeing them as an object for their own sexual pleasure, for their own sexual amusement. In other words, as they look at a woman, they mentally undress them. They envision what it would be like to be with them. They fantasize about having them. And they devise ways to satisfy their own lusts. Now, a word of warning, especially to you men. As you know, men are predominantly stimulated by sight. Doesn't mean that women can't struggle with lust, but guys, I'm, I want to speak to you for a second. We have got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. So when lustful thoughts come into your mind, you need to take them captive immediately. You need, you need to, 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 to root it out. And, and I'm not here to, to preach a sermon on how you do that. I'm just telling you, you need to do that. And, and, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. Again, I don't have time to get into that, but, but we need to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ because lust is never satisfied. 
it always craves more. It always wants more. The law of diminishing return comes into play. Because that which used to satisfy you, you find over time no longer does. So you end up craving more things. You begin pushing the boundaries of your thought life. And oftentimes it will filter right into what you actually do in life. You'll, you'll crave new experiences. Don't do it. It'll put you into bondage. It'll make you its slave. It will ruin whatever normal, healthy relationship you have with your spouse. So if, if you're struggling with this, I encourage you to speak with one of the elders before service. Um, I, I don't want you um, to feel like somehow you're a dirty, nasty Christian because this is something most guys struggle with. And yet we can have victory over it. And we need each other, hold each other accountable, pray for each other, and be there for each other. And we want to do that for you. Verse 14 also tells us here that they entice and seduce unsteady souls. And false teachers, they're deceptive. They always have a hidden agenda. They misrepresent themselves. They dress up everything that they say and they do so that they can look very orthodox. The word translated entice here means to lure or to catch by bait. Interesting, it's a fishing term. So they lure people in with a attractive sounding words and then they set the hook. Once they've got them on the line, they set the hook. And by then it's usually too late. The NIV translates the word entice here uh, as seduce. So, but who are these unsteady souls? Well, it could be a reference to the objects of their lusts, but I really think it's anyone who's not grounded in the truth of God's word. They become easy prey. They want to entice others to join them in their depravity. They get a kick out of seducing people into uh, jumping on the bandwagon, following them and their sinful, corrupt thinking and lifestyles. Verse 14 also tells us that they have hearts trained in greed. And it's interesting, the Greek word that's translated trained here is where we get the word gym from or gymnasium. So think about that for a moment. It's like these guys are, are going to the gym. Only they're not working out lifting weights here. They're devoting themselves to building muscles of greed. They've mastered the sport of swindling. And they can do it in their sleep. That's how good they're, they are. They're, they're trained in it. Church, we need to beware of greed. Greed is the opposite of contentment. A greedy person can never know peace because they're always dissatisfied with what they have. They're always wanting more. I'm gonna come back to that in just a little bit. But look at verse 14. He says, they are accursed children. It's tough being a parent. Any of you parents know that? It's tough being a parent. But as hard as it is, I've never cursed my children. 
by that, I, I don't mean that I've never uh, cussed them out. <laughs> Although I've never done that either. <laughs> Just want to be clear there. Um, yet this is the picture that we have here. They are accursed children. Wow. I don't need to spend much more time on that. Verse 15 says they deliberately, deliberately go astray and follow the way of Balaam. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You see, the first thing you need to understand is these false teachers just didn't make a false, you know, a wrong turn somewhere and get lost. They forsook the right way. They deliberately chose to go astray and pursue unrighteous gain. I think my wife, was it you, Sandy? I think my wife showed me a picture. I don't know where she saw it from. I won't mention the, the individual, but it was a false teacher um, who, who looked like they had just come out of a church service. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, it had dawned on him, oh, this is a great way to make money. You know, I can't remember exactly how it was, but I thought, yeah, I, I wonder, yeah. I, I have often thought, you know, gosh, if I was only unethical, I could be so filthy rich. I mean, seriously. I mean, it, it's not that difficult to draw a crowd, to get them to, to give their money so you can go out and buy a plane or a Rolls Royce or something. I'm getting off topic there, but, you know, these, these false teachers deliberately chose to go astray for the purpose of pursuing unrighteous gain. Now, Peter illustrates this by referring back to an Old Testament story about Balaam. Um, you can find it in, in Numbers chapter 22. For those of you that aren't familiar with the story, Balaam was a pagan prophet. Uh, he wasn't part of the nation of Israel. And um, as Israel was, was journeying uh, to the promised land and everything, um, they, they, they were a, a real fright to the neighboring nations. They had just conquered um, um, I uh, believe Ammon, I think it was Am the Amorites, yeah, in Ammon. And Moab was next in line. And the king of Moab, uh, who was Balak, Balak um, he was so afraid of the armies of Israel that he sent a bunch of princes to go retrieve Balaam because he knew that he was a, a, a seer or a prophet and he wanted him to curse the armies of Israel for him. That's, that's how scared he was of them. So he sends this delegation with a lot of money, promises him wealth, promises him great honor. God intervenes, tells Balaam, don't do it. So Balaam doesn't do it. He tells him, I can't do it. God won't let me do it. Of course, the king won't take no for an answer, so he keeps pressing him. And he says, it doesn't matter how much money you offer me, I can't do it. And then God, for some reason, unknown to us, other than the fact that I think he was testing 
Balaam, he says, all right, next time these guys come to you, go with them. But only say what I command you to say. Balaam jumps at the opportunity. I think thus revealing his heart was full of greed. Oh, this is a good idea, God. God, I think this is a great idea. Yeah, let me go. Let me get filthy rich. So, on the way, he's riding his donkey. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appears before him. Only he can't see the the angel, but his donkey can. And his donkey bolts and jerks, and next thing you know, he smashes Balaam's foot against the wall. And in his anger, he strikes his, his donkey. And then God opens the mouth of the donkey. So the donkey, you know, speaks to Balaam and he says, what are you doing? Why are you hitting me? You know, and then basically God rebukes him through the mouth of an ass. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to, to me sometimes that God, that, that people don't recognize truth. They don't see things. You know, here an animal sees the angel and then he rebukes him. And, and then, and only then, was Balaam's eyes opened and he saw the angel before him. Now, in the end, Balaam was not able to curse Israel. But again, evil had, had taken root in his heart. And so he didn't all of a sudden become a, a follower of God. No, in fact, he told Balak how he could entrap the nation of Israel. He told them how to defeat them. He's, and here's the secret. Invite them to dinner. Invite them to dinner. Entice them with wine, women, and song. Get them to compromise their convictions, their faith. Get them to worship Baal. That's how you defeat them. Like Balaam, these false teachers have chosen to go astray, for they love ill-gotten gain. Again, there's a lesson here for us. Beyond watching out for greedy charlatans, we need to guard our own hearts. We can get so caught up in trying to get ahead in life that we become greedy and we don't even realize it. We can make decisions based solely on how they will benefit us. We might uproot our families, take a new job halfway across the country or all the way across the country. We do it because it pays better. We get better benefits, a bigger house, lower taxes, better weather. I mean, just the list just goes on. But we can do that without considering what kind of impact that will have on our families, what kind of impact that will have on us spiritually, especially if you are a part of a good local church where you are, because now you've you've got to find another one. And I can tell you what happens most often. It doesn't happen right away. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. We, we, we fail to understand how it will impact the mission of God. 
how it will impact the family of God by removing ourselves from that family. We assume in many cases that if such an opportunity arises, that God must be in it. See, we have, we have this mentality, it's great, it's, a, it's, a, it's forward advancement. It's a, why wouldn't God want me to do that? Rarely do we think maybe this opportunity is designed to test us, like Balaam's. Rarely do we seek counsel from spiritual leaders. You know, very, very, I can count on one hand, I think, the number of people who've come to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about making this move or doing this thing or whatever it might be. And I, I'm, I, I think God might be in it, but I'm not really sure. Um, can you help me walk through that? Can you help me process things? I don't want to make a bad decision. And even beyond our working years, we can be self-absorbed. We can think that retirement is me time instead of God time. Instead of thinking how we can be more involved in the church, in ministry, we think it's time to kick back, relax, play golf, travel, watch TV, play with the grandkids, and that's it. So again, even though he's talking about false teachers, we need to be looking at ourselves and seeing what are the temptations that I face and, and cut them off at the pass. Finally, we come to number 12 in verse 17. It says that they are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm or by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now, these are two expressions, and, and he uses them in such a way as to say that both of these things promise something, but both of these things fail to deliver. A well should have water in it, but the well is dry. Clouds ought to produce rain, but the cloud is driven away by the wind before it has a chance to rain and water the ground. And what Peter is saying is that that's what these false teachers are like. They, they promise all sorts of things, but they fail to deliver. They can't deliver. Jude tells us in Jude 12 that these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. They promise freedom, Peter tells us, but they are themselves slaves of corruption. Like mists driven by the wind, they are devoid of any value. And for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. John Piper said, oh, what a need there is in the church for discernment between waterless springs and springs of living water. You know, Peter has gone to great lengths in this chapter, in the entire book, but specifically in this chapter, to help us recognize the true nature and conduct of false teachers. Why? so that we will not entertain the devils unaware. 
Unawares, as I found out, is the proper word. In contrast to these false prophets and shepherds, Jesus offers the water of life to all who are thirsty. Speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, only in Jesus Christ can we find eternal life and true joy and peace and satisfaction in life. Do you know him? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ to save you from it and to give you the gift of eternal life? If, if not, I just urge you, don't leave here this morning without surrendering your life to Christ. Go to him in prayer. Tell him, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you to change me. I want you to make me like you. And he'll do that. If you know him, um, here are a few other takeaways after reading uh, these verses here. Um, I, I would say that we, we ought to have a greater appreciation for the apostle Peter. I mean, think about, I mean, he was not politically correct but he told it like it is because it was the truth. So I think we ought to have not only a greater appreciation for the apostle Peter, but for all who labor hard in preaching and teaching the unadulterated word of God because it would be so easy to preach for sordid gain. We ought to be more discerning of who and what we listen to. We ought to make a concerted effort to know God's word better. And after all of this, we ought to be able to identify false teachers and false teaching when we encounter them. And here's the good news as a close. False teachers, no matter how hard they try, will never be able to thwart God's plan or his purposes in this world. Balaam couldn't curse Israel. Satan couldn't defeat God. He couldn't defeat Jesus. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for this morning and for your word to us. And uh, indeed, it's a heavy word. And it's helpful to us, not only in identifying um, false teachers and false teaching, but also identifying sin in our own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you would help us keep short accounts with sin, that you would make us alert um, to weaknesses, susceptibilities in our own lives, that we might live uh, a life that honors and glorifies you. And, Father, I pray for this, your church, that you would continue um, to do a deep work in our hearts um, that we might further your kingdom, that there might be many more lovers of Jesus in it as a result of what you are doing in our lives. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.